Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? This is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening. It is so good to be back on Our Common Ground. And I am just overwhelmingly joyful about being back. I had a great break. I missed you all. I missed every one of you, and thank you so much for that stream of email. It wasn't that I went out of the country. It wasn't that I went off the planet. It was I was taking a much-needed break. We welcome all of our um, supporters and listeners and our regulars back to Our Common Ground on this Saturday night, September 5th. It is not fall yet. Put your pumpkins back in the refrigerator because it's still going to be summer as long as I can hold on to it. And we also welcome our new listeners tonight at Our Common Ground. We've got a lot of things to cover, but I do want to you know, kind of like cozy up to you a little bit because I missed you so. 
Um, and um, to let you know and bring you up to speed about what's happening, we are back. We will be here in this session two of season 2015. This is the 33rd year of our common ground. How about that? I mean, 33 years. We have gotten fired from radio stations. We have gotten offloaded from Internet stations and networks. But we are here, and we intend to survive because our mission here at Our Common Ground is to, as in the words of Malcolm, to make it plain. Not only make it plain so you, that you understand it, but to make it plain so that you understand the end game. And we are doing that once more here tonight. Uh, I do want to tell you about what's going on with TruthWorks Network. We are reinventing, reconstructing, but you know how much uh, I love my brother. Uh, Alpha, who was who is the host of the Alpha Show, the Alpha Show has been off the air since March, and Alpha was taking a much needed break. You know, you have to understand that people who are dedicated to ensuring that you are well and accurately informed are people who are reading every kind of journal every kind of newspaper, every kind of magazine. Now we have to keep up with the Twitter and we have to keep up with the Instagram and we have to keep up with the Facebook and we are running like five Facebook pages and I'll tell you more about that for you new people who are not who who are not familiar about what we do on Facebook. We've got these websites. Alpha has his, Truthworks has theirs. Commentaries on the Times with Playfell Benjamin will be coming back. We're going to be adding new and exciting and important and critical programming to TruthWorks. But in the process of Alpha taking this break, I mean, you get pressed down when you know too much. And in the process of Alpha taking a break from his Friday night shows at 10 o'clock on TruthWorks Network, which is owned by Our Common Ground Media and Communications, it is the Black Voice Collaborative where we are hoping at some point to build it so that we have five evenings a day, uh, a night uh, programming and Alpha has been doing the Alpha show, which is nothing but politics, straight up, skin to the bone politics. Context of how politics impact black lives. Well, <clears throat> Alpha became very, and I have to tell you, very ill. And he is recuperating in his in Chicago now. He is not home yet. But I can tell by his voice and that he's gathering steam and strength and we're hoping that he will be home soon and can recuperate and get back to telling the truth at TruthWorks Network. You know what he always says. When 
law becomes injustice, resistance becomes necessary. I know I, I know he's listening. I know I got it wrong, but you know, give me a break. It's my first day. I'm surprised that that I even know how to how to do these things, how to connect. So we're wishing Alpha a speedy recovery. I, I'm going to tell you, folks, and most of you out there, especially the regulars who listen to Our Common Ground, who listen to the Alpha Show and Soul of Fire and Commentaries on the Times and and um, Power View. You know how much I love Alpha, and I know how much you love Alpha. I was really worried there for a while. Um, I, it was grave, and I can't tell you what and how saddened and despaired I was about what was happening with this felled well-being that he went through. But he's pushing through it. Now, I do have to say, for those of you who have been emailing me and calling me and asking me about Alpha, today was the first day in three months that I called him, and I couldn't get in edgewise, how are you feeling, before he started talking about Kim Davis and Donald Trump. So you know that that is definitely an absolute signal and how in the hell is he in our chat room (laughs) that's the signal uh two weeks ago alpha would not be in our chat room and if you want to join us in our chat room you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash ocg and join in with all of those who are in our chat room so he's he's making a lot of progress, a lot of progress that I couldn't see three weeks ago or or even two weeks ago, and we're so happy about that and and we wish him well, and I continue to ask for your prayers uh that he will have a a a good and full recovery um and that he will be back home and that he won't be eating. Popeye's chicken and uh, uh, smoked ribs. So we're glad to see him in our in our chat room. I'm really surprised. I can't believe that he's in our chat room, but he is in our chat room, and we wish him well. So um, the the other thing that I want to bring you up to speed about is while we were off the air, and it was very unusual for me to be off the air while major, major things were happening in our community. And there were a lot of major things. I was not on the air when Walter Scott was murdered by a police officer, and the police officer threw down uh, evidence and lied in his report. I was not on the air when nine people were executed in an AME church in Columbia, South Carolina, I was not on the air when Sandra Bland was murdered in her cell. I, I was on on Facebook. I was on on um, Twitter. It, I had I had said that I was taking the, the the summer off from social media, but because of these events, I could not. I could not stand by and not assist in our community 
thinking through these things, which is a good reason why you all should be subscribed to my Facebook and my Twitter, Janice OCG, and Our Common Ground, because I did an awful lot of typing late into the night. I grieved with you, and I want you to know that. Um, I was not around when Baltimore erupted in response to the death of Freddie Gray. I was not on the air. But I stood in solidarity. I did a lot of consultations with a lot of people about their response to what was going on in Baltimore. So I I, I was there, but I was not on the air. Rachel Dazaval, whatever her name is, you know I don't get involved in that kind of stuff. Um, she either went in and in, 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 in Baltimore kind of took her off the, the front pages, and I was really glad. I have been involved with a number of organizations that I have been associated with in talking about the emerging voice out of the slogan, Black Lives Matters, and I'll talk more in the program with you because I, I, I do want to get Ruby Sales, who is our guest co-host tonight, uh, and this issue about Sean King. But I am mindful, I am mindful uh, that while I have been off the air, May through September of last week, of this week, whatever week it is, 409 police killings, 409 police killings. Folks, I think that there's a problem, and I think that we are bearing the brunt of that problem. Um... During the time that I was on the off the air, eleven black churches in the South were destroyed or burned or 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 burned badly by fire. That the explanation about what happened doesn't sit well and shouldn't sit well with us. Uh The hazer from the FAMU, Florida A&M University, um, Rattler's Band, was sentenced to four years in prison. But the officer who killed a FAMU student was acquitted. I don't think very much has changed in the time um, that I have been away. We have lost Joy Reed's voice on cable TV, and yesterday was the last show for the Al Sharpton, Al Sharpton's, Reverend Al Sharpton's Politics Nation. And he will be coming back on the air, I think, October 4th. Uh, and I'm going to talk with our guest host today and you about what all of this means. Tonight, joining with us is my dear sister. You know her. She has been with us. She was our boots-on-the-ground reporter during the Ferguson up 
uprising after the brutal murder of Michael Brown, and she is Ruby Neal Sales, the founder and director of the Spirit House Project. She's a highly trained, experienced, and deeply committed social activist, a scholar, an administrator, a manager, a public theologian, an educator in the area of civil, gender, and other human rights. She is everything that everyone who calls themselves a minister or a pastor or a social activist or a scholar ought to be. She's been with us. She has a proven track record in conflict resolution and consensus building. Uh, She has preached around the country on race, class, gender, and reconciliation, and she has done groundbreaking work on community and nonviolence formation. She serves as a national convener of the early church, church, every church, a peace church movement, and she is a veteran of the civil rights and the black power movement in this country. In August of 1965, Ruby Sales, along with other SNCC workers, joined young people from the Fort Deposit, Alabama, who organized a demonstration to protest the actions of a local white grocery store. And in that effort, Jonathan Daniels, a white seminarian and freedom worker from Cambridge, Massachusetts, was assassinated as he pulled Ruby Sales out of the line of fire. As a social activist, she has served on many committees. She has uh, done further work in uh, social, racial, sexual, gender, and class education and awareness. She served on the steering committee for the International Women's Day the James Porter Colloquium Committee at Howard University is someone in this country who has done more to open doors and pioneer a new thinking about race, gender, and social justice. I don't know who that person is. She was a founding member of Sage Magazine and um, organized a week-long sister speak that brought more than 80 black women together to set a national agenda. Today, out of her Spirit House project in Atlanta, Georgia, she is now working on modern-day lynching and terrorism against our people, and I am so very, very pleased to have her with me, and I'm hoping I'm choosing the right line. Sister (laughs) Ruby Nell Sales, I am so thrilled to have you back at Our Common Ground. And I am so thrilled to be back. Am I on the right line? Uh, Yeah, I I got it. (laughs) Okay, great. It is. I just want to say to everyone out there, it is such a privilege for me to be co-hosting this segment tonight with our dear, brilliant, committed, personable friend, 
B.J. Janice Pete Graham, who's been, who's a seasoned person in the work that she does. Thank you so much for having Thank you, me Ruby. to sit in a seat next to you. You know, I always believe that people ought to know who they're listening to and who they are talking to. So let me allow my listeners, before we begin our discussion, to know who you are. As it happened after black reconstruction, where blacks have enjoyed unprecedented uh, political power, economic and social power, there was a rise of white supremacy, a reinsurgence of white supremacy held together by terrorism and violence. We see that trend developing today where across the nation, black young people and some black older people, men and women, are experiencing grave violence. So I think that it is time for black people to take a realistic stand, assess our situation, and ask the fundamental question, did we come 300 years on a journey to freedom only to end up back oppressed? Joining us tonight, we are honored to have a civil rights, human rights, and black power veteran activist, my sister, comrade, and soldier, Ruby Sale, founder and director of the Spirit House Project, located in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for joining us in the opening of Session 2 of our 2015 broadcast season. I'm Janice Graham. And I'll be listening for you with Ruby Sales tonight, taking your calls, your contributions and comments, your ideas, some solutions, and your perspective. This is Our Common Ground. Ruby Sales, I know you've always wanted a revolution. No time no dime on the revolution, and you've called for a new day uh, for a very long time. How you doing, my sister? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, Just I kind of... sitting here pondering several com- questions and hoping that we'll end up asking some of those questions tonight. Well, I certainly hope so. Let, let's let start out, Ruby, by 
trying to frame an authentic narrative as to where we are. You you posed the question many years ago, a couple of years ago, when I heard you ask the question, did we come this far to still be oppressed? I think I'd like to enlarge that question by asking us to really think about what freedom meant to us. Did it mean that we struggled so hard and sacrificed so much to get out of Pharaoh's house only to walk willingly back into Pharaoh's house and become Pharaoh's servants? The question on the table is what has been the collective goal and mission of more than 400 years of black resistance in this country? And when we talk about resistance, what is the world that we imagine? Is it the right to live like Pharaoh, or is it the, the, the creativity to build up and imagine a new world? We really became very confused. When Martin Luther King said, mountaintop, we thought the mountaintop meant jobs, degrees, material goods, but really the mountaintop was not a place. It was a high level of consciousness. It was the world house consciousness where we began to imagine a new way of being and living in the world. It was a call to a new level of consciousness. And with this new level of consciousness, the rights and freedoms would automatically be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one one of the things about the journey, and I just want to add this, and for those of you who would like to join us in this conversation, uh, you can dial 347 347- Eight three eight nine eight five two, and we do invite you to join us in this in this um, discussion. But Ruby, one of the things that you always talk about is this journey. Yes, and that that we have to look at the idea that we are living under the a system established by an empire for which we have always believed that we could can cure can that we can can penetrate that we can change and i'm wondering if you can you know this is this is a a way in which we can talk about and i think many people in the audience will be thinking about in the era where we are just seeing getting prepared to say goodbye to the first african american president of these united states of this empire whether or not we still maintain that hope and whether or not our vision about this journey that um about this journey has become dimmed 
in the face of a new resurgency of the empire um, being more powerful than what our ancestors and our forefathers had taught us that it was. Because I really don't believe that black people in 1940s and the 1930s believed that we could not, quote-unquote, overcome. Well, I think that you put your finger on the heart of the matter. I think that black people, paradoxically, although segregation was forced upon black people, it was within the context of segregation that black people developed an intimacy. And out of that intimacy, black people developed a community project. And that project was a long road to freedom. There were different lanes on the highway, but the major highway was freedom. And, and out of that community project, there was the optimism that everybody could play a role and getting us to the end of the highway, which is freedom. And so we were we had several things present then. We were in many ways, despite white supremacy, in many ways we were whole. We have experienced in the last forty years the tremendous tools of oppression that have fragmented the body of the black community, that has destroyed our intimacy, where we no longer know each other, has dis dismembered us so that we have lost our understanding of the past. We've lost our hindsight, insight, and foresight. And all of these tools of oppression and assault have been very deliberate because one of the things that, that white think tanks figured out was that despite se segregation, despite Southern apartheid, black people had maintained a cohesiveness and a wholeness that made them a, a spirituality, that made them go up against dogs, horses, billy clubs, and not be afraid. Mm -hmm. And that was a very powerful, powerful presence in the face of one of the most powerful empires in the world. So they understood that it was that intimacy, that cohesiveness, that continuity that allowed us to bring down the southern empire in this country without firing a shot. So one of the things that they knew that they had to do was to fragment the black community, whether you're talking about gentrification, whether you're talking about a model of desegregation where effective black school cultures were destroyed, black mascots were decimated, black kids were made to go to white institutions where they rarely ever came across a black adult. So this whole process of stealing 
the minds of young people, decimating the school culture, which in the South had been a fertile ground for local students who were a part of the Southern Freedom Movement, most particularly SNCC. And so we have to begin to understand the real nature of the multiple assaults that black people have experienced over the last 40 years and what, what have been the implications and the consequences of those assaults. We have to begin to look at the tools of oppression that empires around the world, including this empire, uses in order to maintain systems of oppression. And let me just go through three or four. They are surveillance, containment, fragmentation, destruction of intimacy, historical lies and propaganda that leads to criminalization, the criminalization of parenting, the criminalization of resistance and protest, so forth and so on. And it's not that these tools are new. They are just repeated over and over and over again because they have been very effective. Mm-hmm. You know, it it it, it underscores the, the the idea that, and I want to talk about talk with you about this whole notion of indis, um, um, intimacy, intimacy in our community, because I think we spend, and and some people might disagree with me, but I think we spend too much time worrying about what Donald Trump said or what Hillary Clinton said or what even what President Barack Obama did or didn't do. I think that we spend an enormous, inordinate amount of time looking outward rather than looking inward. And I really think that the the period of segregation in Jim Crow forced us to do that and where and and in the process of doing that created a kind of intimacy that every black person participated in in some way even the elite and the boule had to knew that at some point they had to find their strength in the place from which they came. You know, there are more African Americans under the control of the criminal justice system today in prison or in jail, on probation, or parole that were our parole that were in that were enslaved in 1850. And discrimination is is more rampant both overtly and covertly in housing, education, employment, and voting rights, which we thought, uh, many black people thought, was wiped out by the civil rights laws of the 1960s. But it is now perfectly legal and permission has been granted um, to to do so. I, I I think that 
we have broken the circle of intimacy. And these things are happening to us, and we don't know where to go. I I think I agree with you, but I want to change the verb. Okay. I don't want to say that we have broken the chain of intimacy. I want to say that the tools of oppression have snapped the chains of intimacy between African Americans. And let me just tell you what I mean. One of two ways in which we were intimate with each other was that we participated in a common struggle. We lived with the same common conditions. And we lived in close proximity to each other. You know, it's hard to put a gun to someone's head when you know them very well. I'm not saying you won't do that, but it becomes more difficult to do that in large numbers. So the intimacy, when you do not have memory, there can be no intimacy. Because without memory, the empire has the power to recreate who you are and who you are with each other. And their history becomes a pervasive reality. And their history is not a history that shows continuity and intimacy among African-American people. So we need to understand that one of the ways in which oppression in which white supremacists maintain a white supremacist culture is through the oppressive tools of this memory. And we internalize these assaults and we play, we, we play them out in terms of how we deal with each other. But the genesis of our lack of intimacy is deeply rooted in empire assaults. Because if the empire, let me give you an example. When I heard the whole thing, the the lies and propaganda that are being spread about the Black Lives Matter people, saying that they are wanting to kill police, say that they are filled with hatred for white people. I just, you know, I was stunned in the sense that we've been here before. This is what happened with the Panthers. This is what happened to SNCC and its third generation. If If you understand the implications, it's not just a bunch of crazy white folks talking. This is coming from the highest level of the government also, and is setting people up in the Black Lives Movement to be executed in their beds the way Fred Hampton was, and the society cares nothing about that execution, does not find it offensive, does not raise a ruckus about it. As a matter of fact, breathe a sigh of relief, because in effect, mm-hmm. they have the Black Lives people will have been reduced to being clear and present dangers to the safety of white people in this country. So so my memory of the Panthers, when the society convinced, when white people convinced them, people through COINTELPRO and all other kinds of means, that the Panthers were violent, 
that the Panthers intended to murder white people in their beds, etc. It gave them the leverage to shoot little Bobby Hutton. Do you remember little Bobby yes, Hutton? Yes, yes, absolutely. To shoot Eldridge Cleaver. Even Eldridge was shot to declare war on Panthers and put them in jail for mm-hmm. numbers of years. And even the black community fell for that Did propaganda. Not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so we, mm-hmm. are, you know, there, so this is repeating itself. We need yeah. not take lightly the, the the accusations that Black Lives Matter people are killing and calling for the death of police. That mm-hmm. is serious. Memory tells us that we need to develop a strategy that contests that, and we need to prepare our communities not to accept that as fact. You know, one of the things that is true, and and most of my resistance and rebellion training came out of the Black Panther Party. I was a member of the party, worked with the party here in Boston uh, all of my college years. And um, and one of the things you learn in that in that training is that every war starts with propaganda. And that is the point at which, I mean, people think this all started last year or started with Trayvon Martin or started with uh, Oscar Grant. This started so long ago because they had to do the propaganda program first, and that is to demonize black people in this country and in this society and then watch black people sacrifice their blackness on the altar of white supremacy. Absolutely. And it is important to remember that the Panthers began as a response to police violence. Mm Mm-hmm. And the incarceration of African-American men in California, most particularly in Oakland. So Mm -hmm, if we mm -hmm. are dismembered, if we do not have hindsight, we will think that where we are today has never happened before. And therefore our strategy will, will not be a strategy that is effective because we will deal with today as if there were no yesterday. You know, and and, and, and and one of the things, and for those of you who are listening, if you'd like to join the conversation, you have questions for me. or Please for, do. Uh, with Ruby, our number is 347-838-9852. You're tuned in to Our Common Ground, and Ruby Sales is my co-moderator tonight of this discussion about rebellion and resistance. Ruby, I'll tell you a story. Um <clears throat> Paul Coates was the uh, head national researcher, scholarship, history person for the Black Panther Party back in the 60s when I was active in the party. And one of the things that he did was to teach me how to do research. And I literally spent a year and a half 
doing nothing but setting up a topography center here in Boston to be able to see where the Boston police was going to be able to build tunnels under the streets that went through and around the black community. I mean, that's how serious it was, and that was in 1968. So none of this started, but I think that one of the things I want to talk to you about is how we got fragmentized as there was an increasing police presence an increasing fear and anxiety about black people in this country. Now, of course, we all know that the war on drugs was one of the campaigns that was used to try to gain control. Right. Uh, We all know that many things that we experience, like busing and uh, some desegregation in housing, that those were all ruse, those were all cover-ups, so that we could not see the increasing military state in the black community. We could, we did not pay attention to the uh, failing schools that serviced our community, the failing transportation systems. Uh, we did not see and pay attention when Social Security and Medicaid um and health systems were being eroded in terms of its delivery to our community. We didn't see all of that stuff, see, because we were paying attention to um the five people who were making it, the five people who were appointed to the city whatever and the state whatever and the whatever cabinet positions that they put aside. So when Ronald Reagan came through, we did not see his campaign. We certainly didn't see um, Bill Clinton's campaign. How do we, and I'm asking this of you people out there in the audience, how do we, how, how critical are we about the losses and understanding the internal losses of those of that period of this process, you know, because we're getting we're getting involved. You know, Ruby, you always say, you know, you always say, and I'm going to say, you said uh, that we we have been been we are victims of the seduction of whiteness. Yes. Let's well, talk about I that think for it a goes back to what I said earlier. We did not answer seriously the question that Martin Luther King and other people posed, where do we go from here? We did not ask the question, how is it that we would live in the world as free people? There were several things that began to happen early on that should have been warning signs about what was going on and the consequences of that. And I, The first thing was the co-optation of very bright black kids in the South, rooting them out of their communities and giving scholarships for them to go to white schools. We thought that was a wonderful outcome 
of the work that we had done in the Southern Freedom Movement. We did not look at the models in China, Africa, and all over the world where this process had been used to decimate the relationships and the continuity of those societies. And we did not understand that once you take a young person's mind and educate them in the master's house, you create within them opposing loyalties. And many of them were determined never to go back home again. And so when you take the best and brightest out of a community, and instead of serving that community, you put them in the service of the empire, and you create within them an understanding that they are the exceptional Negro or black person, and they began to have a perception of other black people as being all of the things that were said about them, welfare queens, criminals, deadbeat fathers, all of the lies and stereotypes that rose up about black people. And you began to believe that you're different because white people said you're different. You're smart because you went to Harvard. You're smart because you went to Princeton. You're different. And you and a new kind of elite began to be was developed. There's a difference between the classism that existed in the black community when we lived together as a community where every black person, no matter their social location, had to deal with the realities, whether they wanted to or not, of racism, of white supremacy. But now, with this new elite, who have rarely been taught by other black people, they have no intimacy, no connection with the community project of upbuilding the black community. They see their success as tied into how they perform in the master's house. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's so important out there for us to understand what this intimacy is. You know, I had a conversation, um, <clears throat> Ruby, um, a couple months ago, and, and I talked about it on the air, about how I was trying to explain to this young woman uh, who, you know, was probably in her late 30s, early 40s. She was a grandmother, so she was somewhere, you know, in that area. And 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 helping her understand that there was a culturation of black people who grew up in the South where there was black children learned early by hit, miss, and your mama whipping your ass about what it meant to be black in this country. And you learned it in order to be safe. You learned it in order to not only thrive in your own segregated community, but to be safe when you had to go outside. And there was this intimacy that you're talking about happens quietly from the time a child is born. And it comes in messages that are subliminal, like black people, your blackness has a history. You know, this whole thing about our children thinking that black history starts with slavery just drives me a little bit nuts. But that intimacy is how we rely 
on each other, how we lean into each other for strength, for wisdom, for insight and perspective, because anything outside of that intimacy is going to have been tainted by a country that runs from the motor of white supremacy. Am I right? Well, yes, and one of the ways in which this whole fragmentation and lack of intimacy play out today is that we always had black people in the community who dealt with different multiple realities. So you always had a lesbian, gay, bi person in the black community. You always mm-hmm. had class in the black community. But we always operated with all hands on deck. We were not a That's community it. that if I'm a lesbian, then I see myself as separate from the black community. If I'm a straight person, a heterosexual person, I see myself separate from black people who are same gender loving. We just, we understood that despite all of our other realities, the grounding and pervasive reality was our blackness. Because as a lesbian, same gender loving person, how you experience that could not be separated from your blackness. And all lesbians don't have the same experience. All poor people, as much as people want to make poverty, poor people a monolith in this country, all poor people are not, do not have the yeah. same experience. Yeah. And mm-hmm. even white poor people can enjoy the trickle down of whiteness. Trickle down uh-huh. whiteness. You can see you know, that and, and, during enslavement when poor white people participated in the slave patrols. They had they did not have land, they did not have wealth, but they had to trickle down the benefits of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so they were willing to be foot soldiers for that mm-hmm. trickle down whiteness. Mm-hmm. It's, and so it, to equate poor white people with poor black people is to be really historically dishonest and to eradicate the pervasiveness of white supremacy in our national life. And, and, you know, and you have made on this show and and Dr. Tommy Curry uh, has has made the, 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 the point on this show that this whole notion that the feminist community and the progressive community and the left community are trying to sell us about intersectionality. And if I hear that word one more time, I'm going to absolutely scream that that is something that serves to destroy the intimacy that makes us strong. Well, I think intersectionality has a different starting point. Intersectionality comes out of a people who have grown up with otherness, who've been raised to be disconnected and not have anything in common with other people. So they seek to find those common points 
through something called intersectionality. Our struggle as African Americans is not a struggle in terms of intersectionality. Our struggle is a struggle to be whole in a society that from the very point of captivity has sought to fragment and decimate African-American lives. So that brings us up to the whole notion of Black Lives Matter. Oh, yeah. Now, if you don't understand the historical expansiveness of that word, that from the time black people from different tribes in Africa were captured and put on these enslaved ships headed to a strange land, they had to recreate a a new people and a new nation. And I think it's really important for us to really ask, actually, I forgot my point. What was I saying, Janet? We were were talking about the whole notion of wholeness. Oh, yes, wholeness. And so the whole thing was to separate people from the same tribes, from the same regions, so that they would not be able to communicate with each other and ferment a resistance insurrection on on the ship. Then there was the breaking in process of t- sending Afri- African peoples to the Caribbean where they would be broken in further, where it then became against the law to speak the language, to remember the gods, to have any memory became against the law, mm-hmm. to beat the mm-hmm. drums was against Mm -hmm. the law. So our struggle is not a struggle of intersectionality. Our struggle is a struggle, as it has always been, to be whole. Mm -hmm. And to make sure that whatever our activities are, that we are focusing and being critical in the areas based on the data, not based on something else somebody's told me because I want everybody out there to remember that we live in a war zone. This is war, and every war is fed by propaganda. Ruby, we've got well, a caller. I, I want to say something about that because I don't think we should leave that hanging. I want to just give a little history lesson here. With the war on drugs, after the Southern, you have to understand that the very nature of white supremacy predicates itself on the belief and the reality that black rights threaten white supremacy. That is exactly Absolutely. true because the more black people exercise our rights, the more people of color exercise our rights. You have a democracy That's and right. not white you're, supremacy. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely so, right. So there has always been the understanding among white supremacist ideologues that black rights, that black people potentially in fighting for freedom are really, we are the enemies. 
of a white supremacist state. Mm-hmm. Because we I become mean, the friends of democracy. We become the friends of a society. It's, we're not, our struggle is to open up the doors of democracy, not to close it. So when black people say black power, we're not imagining an over against the world, world against white people. That's white mm-hmm. people's understanding of power. But for black mm-hmm. people, power is the ability to exercise our rights and to exist in a world with equal protection under the law. The power to reach our highest potential, not only as individuals, but as a people. So when white people say that black, so white people think that black power is what white power has been, but the truth of the matter is you cannot name one black politician in the history of this country who used his power to deny white people their rights. Mm-hmm. You just can't say historically there there's no evidence of that. Mhm. Ruby, you're getting a little choppy. Are you on a cell phone? No, I'm on my regular phone. Can you hear oh, me now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh we're at the top of the hour and with me tonight is Ruby Sales, the seasoned veteran of of struggle history. I I just have to put it that way. She's a wonderful educator, public theologian, uh, activist uh, with expertise in community development and community planning, community organizing. And we thank you for being with us, and we're going to go to our phone, 773. I'm at you right now. I respect you. You're on our common ground with me and my sister, Ruby. Well, Janice, good evening to you and good evening to you, Jessica. He is even Good evening. I want to thank everyone for their well wishes and um, just for your prayers. Um, You're right, Janice. Uh, I've I've seen it. I know know it now. And I've known Uh it for the last two months. I've been literally, literally at home three days of the last two months. And um, I'm in the bed right now at a rehab center. And I've been in bed for 36 days. Wow. And I say in bed, can't get up, can't go in and can't move. Um, folks, I just want you to know, and he's been soldiering through all of this. Um, um, you all are absolutely right in your assessment. And I would just let me say, we as a people, I mean, I, I don't want to be the the, the the bearer of doom and gloom. Well, you we always have, are. What's go, what's changed? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. We still have people my age, and I'm 62, who don't believe in post-traumatic slaves and who don't believe that we as a people of God, who simply ask the same questions of Bill O'Reilly asked or Sean Hankey, why don't black people take responsibility for their actions? Mm. We, we still have black people who believe that. And not, and not, not Harvard-educated, poor and black like me. And they just don't get it. 
and they want to say they're not going to, they're not going for that excuse. They call it an excuse, and these are supposed to be uh, educated. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, well, whatever you want to want to call them, you know, with with minds of their own, and you can't you can't convince them of anything different. And you're absolutely right. This is about propaganda. And what we didn't see coming 40 years ago, which is upon us now, what is upon us now, we don't see coming. This bit about I'm not issuing licenses because it's God's law. This is the beginning of a Christian Sharia. The very thing that they were against, we don't want Muslim Sharia. Well, the one thing that I've learned over the years is whatever they are attacking, accusing you of, that is what they're guilty of. And they are guilty right now of they're, they're implementing the Christian Sharia. They're implementing the, and they're doing it because no one stopped them. No one called them out. And the same thing happened as police gunned down unarmed black men. Nobody called it out. Nobody asked the question, why has the Klan never been designated a terrorist organization? If you remember one thing, and you all remember the uh, slave patrols, you all mentioned the slave patrols. The slave patrols were the first policemen. Yeah. They were the first policemen, the first police organization. And the first armed militia, too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you remember, if you remember... The killing of the three uh, civil rights workers in Mississippi. They were killed, pulled over and killed by Klansmen who were policemen. Old Connor was a Klansman, a policeman. And in each and every one of those southern states, you've had policemen, Klansmen, politicians, prosecutors, judges who had one thing in common. They were all Klansmen. And when did they give up that Klansman belief? They never Well, had. you know, here here's the example. Here's the modern-day example, Alpha and Ruby. Um, the fact that the executioner in Columbia, South Carolina, was arrested, and they went to get, and the cops took him to get some, went and got him something to eat because he was hungry. He had a million-dollar bail in the same county a black boy, 18 years old, killed a dog, and he got 20 years. And his bail, his bail was, I think, fifteen thousand, fifteen million dollars, or some craziness like that. So nothing new under the sun. But There's no nothing new under the sun. But I think what has to be new under the sun is for us to expand our analysis where we connect hindsight, insight, and foresight. It's Mm -hmm. very important that as we look at these issues that we have some context for understanding and analyzing what it is we're looking at. It's very important to understand that in the South, during enslavement, Southern states, the governing ideology was white supremacy. Absolutely. And white Southerners 
within the legal uh, criminal justice systems system and representatives of law enforcement were more committed to protecting the rights and prerogatives of white supremacy and their investment in their own whiteness than they were into constitutional law and the rights of people. We just mm-hmm. got to face that. Yeah, this and, is and what just, the South was about. And as Al, and as Alpha said, our silence and our misunderstanding or our denial to understand the the historical context in which all of these things are happening today is detrimental to us. That's and why he I allowed say on people show, to use the Second Amendment right as a justification for bearing arms, white people. But when you look right. at that amendment. It really is very clear that that amendment amendment came out of a compromise that white Southerners were demanding. It says states. It doesn't say individuals. It says states have a right. It was arming states uh, Mm -hmm. for slave patrols and to be able to put down slave insurrection Insurrections of the community of enslaved people. That's right. As well as, and so we 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 see the militarization of the police force today, and where the lines between the police and the military have become blurred. Well, you mm-hmm. have a military conducting SWAT raids on drug places. I mean, but mm-hmm. that's not new in the South during enslavement the militia would be called out to put down, quote-unquote, slave insurrections. So what the South did when they won the victory, the popular victory, uh, 40 years ago when they mobilized white resentment, they instituted on the national level a Southern model where both Mm -hmm. the Army and the police served the interests of a white supremacist state and, and that's declared war right. on black people as enemies. Now, historically, the federal government did not do everything that it could do, but it was present in Birmingham. It was present in Little Rock. It was present in Montgomery when the buses were burned. And so there was some understanding that black people were citizens. We, mm-hmm. with the war on crime and the war on drugs, the federal government declared war instead of protecting our rights. The government became one with the police force in declaring war on black people. We were no longer citizens but enemies of the state, pure and simple. And so the That's whole right. role of the federal government has changed tremendously in the last 40 years. Yeah. I think that's what I tr- I'm trying to say is that what what they do, we are afraid to do. We are afraid to, appears that we are afraid to come out and point the finger at the bad guys. We are afraid to tell the American people that the policemen, that the 
hierarchy of justice is wrong and right with with Klansmen. And when they started shooting and killing unarmed black men, women, children, no one said it. No one dared say it on on a cable channel or in the news. No one dared say it. But when you have a cable channel that says white people are under attack and they've demonized and vilified Black Lives Matter, just as they demonized and vilified the Panthers and every group that dared stand up, then we have a problem. We won't and can never win that propaganda war. Absolutely. Alpha, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you, brother, and I'm glad to hear that you're on the men. And take care of yourself and stay in bed for as long as you need to. And don't tax your mind any more than what it needs to be taxed. Let both your mind and your body, well, and your spirit heal. Well, okay, I'm using okay. that as a measurement of about how how he is progressing. And today, when I called and he started a radio show, <laughs> I knew he was feeling better. That was Alpha of the Al, the host of the Alpha Show, and and we're hoping that in in soon he will be back on the air. With me tonight is Ruby Sales, is my co. Moderator, our number is 347-838-9852. And remember, if you want to join in the conversation, you simply have to dial that number, 347-838-9852, and you have to press 1 on your smart device. We're going to take a break, Ruby, and when we come back, we're going to go straight to 901. I see you on the board. You are here on Our Common Ground, a sanctuary for black truth. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back at our common ground. I'll be. If you're willing to accept our freedom, then you have to be willing to accept what comes with it. This is about every black man who cannot get justice. You need to represent. You need to be the voice for people who do not have a voice. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Hi, I'm Venus Williams. You know, I heard recently that the two main reasons for not getting an annual mammogram are limited access and fear. I know that there are low-cost and even free screenings at some hospitals and clinics, and I've even heard of mobile mammogram units in some areas. Talk about service. 
Look, I know getting a screening is not as exciting as shopping, but life is for living. So take the first step to breast health. Get the mammogram. For more information, please visit breastcancerawareness.com. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real raw, right now. If it's real raw right now, talk media. Come on, baby, say it with me. It can only be the I Declare Show. Talk soon. Join my friend and colleague on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 9 p.m., the I Declare Show with India Declare. India returns September 15th. 9 p.m. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I Declare It. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show, baby. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. about uh, Alpha called us in our first hour and four minutes because y'all made me blow my break, but anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry Alpha about that. Kid, when you listen to the Alpha show, he, he, he takes a break if he gets a chance. <laughs> <laughs> but it gave you a chance out there to to refresh your refreshments and uh, stretch your legs for a little bit because this gets really intensive. And, Ruby, we've got some other callers, and I want to go straight 
to our callers because I'm sure they're simmering on some of the nuggets, the golden nuggets that you have dropped here tonight. 901, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. How you doing, BJ? I just wanted to say hello and check in with you real quick. Whoa, I hadn't checked in with you in a while. Whoa, it's my global traveling friend. <laughs> <laughs> good to good to hear from you, Dr. Byron Price. Uh, how are you? I'm good, my sister. I just been listening in, and I just wanted to just share a few things with you. I guess one of the things, um, you know, you all are putting out a lot of great information. I, I guess one of my frustrations. And I use Dr. Dre, for example, and uh, when I think about this, the report I saw in the newspaper, about 82% of black teens are unemployed. And, you know, he mm-hmm. gave $36 million to the University of Southern California. And, you know, oh, we talk well. about we talk about global white supremacy and all these other different things. Uh-huh. But I, I, I still, my contention is until we begin to sort of mobilize and sort of... Uh, Build on what Gary attempted to do, and what they attend, and what the other leaders attempted to do at the Bandon conference in Gaddafi. You know, yeah. he had his faults. He had his faults, of course. But I, we refuse to sort of uh, transform our own community. You know, whites have shown, and they continue to show that they have no regard for us. But I think what's more problematic is we refuse to work together. And get ourselves out of this uh, out of this mess that we're in, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. no no one's gonna save us but us. You know, mm-hmm. white folks. Yeah, took you it. know, they, they Ruby took talks it. a lot about what you're saying, and that is uh, two things that we have to do is that uh, we have to stop mocking the notion of our own village, Absolutely. and the other is that we have to value the blood that has been shed. Absolutely. Um, you know, and to the, to the notion that Dr. Dre, who touts himself as a conscious brother, touts himself as a conscious brother, he's straight out of stupid. Well, uh, well, you know, <laughs> well, well, you know, but 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 you think about the things we refuse to do for one another. You think about now LeBron James is, a, is an example. Think about the assets of all these athletes and entertainers, and and you just even think about our current president. You know, you think about just all the people, all of us. But we refuse to resolve the problems in our community until we are known. Even you talk about the media, where the media has always demonstrated that they're going to focus on our pathologies and they sanitize mm-hmm. whatever it is they do. And in and, and their memory, they don't remember anything that they've done. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. so they're not going to put that out there. They're going to mm-hmm. focus on us. So cause what, what, when they focus on our pathologies, they make it acceptable that we, it's acceptable to treat us this way because when you think about it, they still give a lot of images of us being animals and sort of depraved and so forth. So mm-hmm. yeah, you can continue to mm-hmm. treat them that way. Mhm, mhm. Uh, uh, so as my- a program note, uh, I'm 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 glad you you you're, you're raising these issues, Byron, because as a program note, uh, the homework I always give homework out on at our common ground. Um, 
I want everyone who has access to either YouTube or Netflix to go watch the documentary, The Place Where I Live. Because you see the images, you see the, in this documentary, they just lay out everything that you just said about how we have been, how our agency, our humanity has been rendered in the minds of our own people as powerless and without and without any agency how we have put been put in that context uh, let me get a ruby let i know me you want to just say something here. yes very quickly because i want to be fair and say none of our hands are clean amen i want to just be very clear it's not just the lebron jameses of the world it's also ordinary people in our communities including us why is it that we would have given up black newspapers, refused to support black media, black newspapers, sent our press releases to corporate media when we know in fact, why would you depend on the empire's media to promote your ideas and your activities? Mm-hmm. You see, the thing about about white supremacy is that we all internalize some part of the empire. And the other thing that I want to say is that we must move away from either-or analysis. We must move to a simultaneous analysis of the world that we live in, as our parents and grandparents did. They operated from a simultaneity where they resisted. They knew when to resist and the necessity of when to accommodate. And so it's not that we should never analyze white supremacy That is a necessity. But we also simultaneously must look at internalized black, white, black, internalized oppression in black people and how that creates in us horizontal horizontal hostilities and how that really... I think we understand all of that. I think we understand all of that. I think we it's, it's time for us to act. We, you know, we we well, would see, I think that's pre, I think that act without thought is empty. Oh, well, but that, and but I I'm, think I'm that we have a tendency to is, position uh, action above thought. And I'm, I'm for an emancipatory is, praxis where thought is as significant sister. as action. That it is absolutely absurd to think that you can empty-headedly go out but, and go uh, up against one of the major chess players in the nation. Without all having I'm, a strategy predicated is, I, on thought, I said we. I said we've analyzed, so I said it's time to act. I'm not no, saying, we have not developed an analysis. Most people don't know about the militarization of the police force. Most people have not understood how the federal government has shifted in the last forty years. Most people have I, not made would, a connection. I would, I would respect. I would respectfully disagree. Well, no, I'm going to disagree with that. I think that one of the ways in which we're in this mess is that we've been consumers of knowledge rather than producers of knowledge. And I think that we consume our whole reality is manipulated 
by outside forces, and our intellectuals are not producing knowledge that is accessible and in a language that's the ordinary that's functional to movement building in this country. So I I respectfully disagree with. That. I and I would respectfully disagree with you, but I, but I'm going to leave it there because I'm going to be agreeable. Well, here here we are. <laughs> I think that no, I, I like that, the fact that we're doing this. That's great. I I I think that one of the things uh, that I'm not clear about, and 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 let's let's just take the the slogan that is Black Lives Matter. Okay, great. I think that poor people in our inner cities, I think undereducated and miseducated young people in our inner cities get a spark from that slogan but they don't really know what it means because Absolutely. their lives, the, the sphere of their lives is so narrow. I think Byron would agree with that. I've talked with Dr. Byron Price enough to know that I think you would agree with that. And, and let's, talk, let's talk about Black Lives Matter for a minute. Okay. Well, I think from the time black people were captured and enslaved and legally reduced to property, our cry of resistance for 400 years has been black lives matter. In a society that said that only white lives mattered, our resistance, the the continuous theme in our resistance in this country has been every aspect of black life matters our determination to be a whole people, our determination to exercise the fullest of our constitutional rights, our desire to become producers of knowledge. And so our desire, our our absolutely determination and assertion that we have a right to be compensated for our labor and our refusal to work on plantations be sharecroppers, and so you know, even the, the the movement in Alabama that we think about that Martin Luther King was a part of. What we really missed in that movement is that that was a movement of maids and janitors, black maids and janitors, poor people who rode yes, the buses every day. Yes, Middle yes. class black people didn't ride the buses in in the South. You know that for a fact. Uh, yeah, BJ, yeah, but that was not the they wrote, they had the security of cars. Yeah, they didn't they go did. to work at they they went to school to teach and and they didn't go to white houses to work where they had to either ride the bus. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a mm-hmm. it shifted not only us it, it not only brought on the table civil rights but it was an economic revolution mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. took place in the South right. where black people out of that came at least as paltry as it was, but a greater compensation yeah. compensation for our labor. But let's 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 move back to Byron's urgency about having a plan and acting. I think you that can't act without understanding what you're doing. Well, but you can't. Even even Dr. Chancellor Williams laid out a plan in the destruction of black civilization. 
I think Claude Anderson and his power numbers, I think he's laid out some different things. But Byron, I think it's here's the, but Byron here's you can't have a movement. All of the intellectuals in the world could have gathered around the table in Alabama but and created all kinds of analysis and historical texts. But the real revolution in Alabama happened because black because of ordinary black people who didn't know an A from a bullfrog, who opened up their homes to and who themselves for the first one of the rare Absolutely. times in history had access to the microphone. Absolutely, but now everybody wanna be a rapper and they aspire to it's like people waiting to go to heaven. Now everybody aspiring and so they so they won't do anything because everybody. I agree trying with to, you on that. But why do you yeah. think that is? That's because they bought into it just like people, you know, it's like, just think, let's say hypothetically speaking, that we were certain that there was nothing beyond the grave. Do you think people would accept their wretched conditions if they knew there was nothing beyond the grave for certain? And it's the same as to me, you know, that's what religion has done to people, but also this aspiration to be entertainers, athletes, and so forth. A lot of people basically refuse. Go ahead, go ahead. But those those are get rich quick and come out of people's narrow uh, experiences and world. And understanding Kardashian and Kanye West and LeBron James. But the thing is that we have to any movement, any social movement, and I am in total agreement that we need a huge social movement. With a plan at every level, we've got to plan it down to the detail of your block, your neighborhood. When you say we, uh, BJ, are you talking about grassroots people participating in the plan? And let me just say something Ab- about the movement. Ordinary people like Fannie Lou Hamer, who had a fourth grade education had access to the language and the analysis where she could define the mission of the movement and the nature of our struggle. Exactly. Until That's what I'm saying. ordinary Until people can do that, exactly. there will and be no radical change. Understand that Black Lives Matter is about how their lives have become so marginalized, how but, but, the threat against their children but, came to be. And what mechanisms? I mean, when we talk about Byron, you know that when we talk about I'm not about disagreeing in, with you all. I think like yeah, even Black Lives know, Matter, they about to get ready to co-op. They about to co-op the Black Lives <laughs> Matter. They about to become a part yeah. of the Democratic but agenda. But the thing is that we have to seize on the opportunity to use that slogan as a new movement in this country because it has a spark. And the, and, and we have to start right. and to, by, right. these, by these people don't respect slogans. They, they, these people respect violence. Well, I'm not going to engage in a conversation well, about violence in a technological yeah. society uh, where there are drones. If you call for people to you, be you violent, be afraid, you darn sure better afraid. be prepared to have people I'm, to protect I'm not themselves. Saying, I, I'm, I, I made an observation. I'm not asking people. Yeah. 
to go yeah, out there. I want to be very time. clear that yeah, I think that's a suicide mission in well, a technocracy. Well, of course, it's a suicide mission, but you can't. But you know, that's why they respect them. And that's why they respect them Muslims because they suicide. Well, I don't think that's but, the case. I think the real secret behind all of this, Sterling Brown put his finger on it when he said strong men keep coming. No matter what they've done to us in this country, no matter how they've tried to hold us down, contain us through surveillance and all of the other means of oppression, the black only observation I was making, I wasn't calling for violence like Sarah, but I'm saying that's the only thing. When you you talked about analysis, you didn't. No, I'm about saying analysis. that's not the only thing they respect. The truth and of the I matter is, is that white people respect. think that black people that they know had they gone through the things that we've gone through, that they would not be alive. That's why when they shoot somebody, they shoot them 37 times because they don't believe that black and, people die like other people. And, and so we and need we, to and understand. We just, and we just lift We just pray them away. We just pray away out. No, you keep. Making these statements, praying for black people was not compliance. For the black folk theology, it was the element of prayer that allowed black people to get up off their feet and go out there and stand in the face of bombs, billy clubs, dogs, and horses. Now, the religion of Christianity that white people gave black people was not the Christianity that we made it. Okay. okay. Ralph Ellison so would ask here, the question, here, 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 here are we merely something that white people have created, or have we created something of our own? Here, here same thing, different message, same objective. Yeah, that, that, that's where we are. Hey, Byron, I hope you'll join us next week because we're going to yes, be ma'am. really Wait, looking Byron, at... Wait, Byron, thanks for your, for your provocative questions. And, uh, and, and I and hope and that your comments really enabled people to really take the dissent and come up with uh, their own perspectives. I think dissent is very important, and this has been very, this is how, and so I thank you very much for caring yes, enough ma'am. for the program evening. to come on. Thank you. And, and, and thank you, Byron, for your call. And, and, and the, the whole notion is until we extrapolate what, the loss of intimacy, as we've talked about, Ruby, until we extrapolate and help people understand the the meaning of structural racism and institutionalized racism and how it works in their lives, how it works in their lives and threatens right. their children and threatens their 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 future. Until we do that, and we haven't done that very well. See, we're talking to this is like talking to the to the, to the choir up in here at our common ground, and we need to begin to take these messages and start talking. I mean, one of the things that I think that we need to be doing is, if you're an activist in your community and you're not out on Sunday, you need to be going to the jail. And as families come out from visiting their loved ones, handing out a talking point sheet about yes. what that jail yes. means. And until we do that, we're not going get, to get very far. And 802 has been wor- wait, waiting, and I appreciate you holding on, 802. You're on the air on our common ground where black truth 
Hello. is the barometer. Thank you for your call. Yes, hello. Yes, hello, Ruby? how are you? Janice, um, good evening. It's John Wilmerding in Brattleboro. Oh, Hi, John, John, thank how you, are you so much for joining us. <laughs> I'm John very, very sent happy. out 200 invitations to this program today. <laughs> Y'all better write that down because that's what we need in order to grow right. and to get more people up on our common ground because Saturday night is a very special night. <laughs> Thank you for your call, John. What are your comments? Oh, well, first of all, um, this is, the, this is the, the crowning moment of my 67th birthday. Well, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Immensely, but I don't want to celebrate myself here. I want to celebrate Ruby and you, Janice, for bringing the truth to the people. Well, thank you. And, thank and I have recently, I've recently gotten uh, a chance to hear Ruby uh, deliver her sermon on the 50th anniversary of Jonathan Daniels' martyrdom. You probably talked about that before I came online. And I was just so very, very inspired because the sermon spoke to my condition as a white man. Uh, and as someone who tries my best to turn away from the king's table, as as Ruby puts it. I think it's great language, and I've been sharing it ever since, and sharing it with a um, a dialogue group. We have 32 middle-aged white people meeting in Brattleboro, Vermont, uh, talking about our racism and how to overcome it. And um, there are people who care enough, and I think that there are white people who care enough, I must say, and and I think that uh, that was so un- inutterably tragic. Uh, the the atrocity in Charleston on June 17th has created a teachable moment in the life of this country. I have to believe this because I cannot believe that we can backslide as a country all the way back to the to the to the an incident you know. Uh, that that is of the caliber and magnitude and, and abysmal hellishness of the bombing in Birmingham that killed those four little girls. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, go ahead. I have a I have a great deal of uh, empathy and great and gratitude for white people who are really to struggle around their whiteness. Uh, and and I, I think that the stuff that you're doing in Brattleboro ought to be replicated, not all over New England, but all over this country. Mm-hmm. Because if we are ever to come to a place where our mutuality around our humanity is shared, yeah. it is going to be with people who are willing to 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 embrace and revise the history of this country who absolutely understand their own fear and can see the fear and anxiety of other people in this country based on that history and thank you, John, so very much. Um, You're welcome. I know what it is a jo- uh, what a joy it is to hear Ruby Sales talk. I mean, I could listen to oh, her yeah. talk for forever. Um, and 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 I really encourage the white people who are listening to this show to be begin if you have not to understand 
what whiteness does in a circle of humanity. Yes. And not allow the history of this country to be a blind spot in your lives. Absolutely. And what I would say is that there's something in this struggle for everyone. And the empire promises white people the world and give them the small space of whiteness, mm-hmm. where you have to stay contained in a very small space, diminish your humanity, and if you don't do that, then you suffer consequences also. Yes, so this absolutely. is an opportunity. The work that we do to build up a new world is an opportunity for all of us to live into the fullness of our humanity in larger and more relational spaces where we become one with each other and one with creation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's liberation. Thank you so, so very much for inspiring that. me. Well, John, we appreciate your call. We've got lots of calls on the board. Everybody everybody waits till the last 15 minutes of the show <laughs> to call. I, I, I think it's a disease, and somebody needs to do some research to figure out <laughs> how to carry it. Carry on. God bless you both. Thank you, John. Thank you, John, and thank you for your support happy of birthday this broadcast. Again. <laughs> thank and you happy birthday Yes, happy birthday. We don't have Stevie Wonder on here. You know, I came back and all my audio files were were gone, Ruby. But we'll fix that. Uh, 240, I respect you. You're on the air at Our Common Ground. How you doing? This is uh, Brother Todd from Washington, D.C. Hey, good to hear from you, brother. Mm. Okay, um, really, really briefly uh, with the Black Lives Matter situation. Okay. Black Lives Matter from the get-go. Um, I knew that, in theory, it was a nice idea. It had a point to it, but it was going to go around. And I'm not one of those people that likes to be negative. But the reality is, is that without leaders in any kind of movement, actually without organization, you don't necessarily have to have you know, this big messiah figure, but without organization within a movement. It's like a runaway train, you know, everybody gets invested emotionally. And once you've got, especially something driven by social media, once it's that fire has grown that big, no matter what happens, whether something wrong happens or whatever, you have to support it no matter what. And so Mm -hmm. what you have now is you had one instance where you had a group of people doing a protest, had a roast pig, and they put an officer's service cover on their pig and said, oink, oink, bang, bang. And all of a sudden, that one snippet is now all over the news. So now you have politicians across the nation coming out, speaking out against the movement. You had the governor down in North Carolina say, listen, I'm I'm unofficially labeling you a, a terroristic movement, not an organization because you're not organized, but a terroristic mm-hmm. movement if you don't clean this up. You got the Boy Scouts of America now to come out and talk against it. You got the U.S. Well, unofficially, you got members of the U.S. military trying to support uh, being against it. And what you what we have ultimately done is we have alienated ourselves in a political sphere because nobody Mm -hmm. on either side, the left or right, wants to Mm -hmm. really entertain the movement too much because of those specifics. Mm -hmm. Well, a slogan does not create a movement. 
the other thing, Ruby, and I know you want to comment on this. Uh, yeah. The, the the other thing too is that every uh, order and um, movement in this country have been created by young people. Uh, we have got to realign what has happened to the slogan, which is not a movement, and to create a movement. And if that means supporting the voice of those young people, I am for that. But as I have said on a couple of radio shows where I have been guest and um, Black Lives Movement uh, and these young people, they have been more than uh, protesting Bernie Sanders and getting shut down by Hillary Clinton because they were in St. Louis. They were in Ferguson. And somehow we've got to, uh, and and I have said, uh, my brother, that uh, they better ask somebody because otherwise it will get get shut down. But we should not allow that. We should not well, allow I, it. Uh, uh, right. We I'll should not allow that. And the problem with the construct, what you laid out, my dear brother, is that you're putting the blame on young people for the vicious assaults from people in the society who never supported the movement from the very beginning, tried to make Ferguson and Baltimore be a violent movement has always, from the very inception of the response, has stood over and against it. Even before the incident happened that you've described, it, mm-hmm. there was a disclosure that the FBI was tracking Black Lives uh, members. And so that the very nature of asserting that Black Lives Matter in a white supremacist world that contends that only a few white lives matter is very dangerous and very threatening. To hide behind an incident and use that as a cover, we've seen that before. This is not a new tactic. So don't say that they have alienated. What they need to do, and we need to give them an opportunity, they need to grow as we were allowed to grow. But had they never stepped out and contested the murder of Michael Brown, we would not be talking about what it means to build a movement tonight. That's right. They have their lives on the line. They have, some of them have dropped out of school. They have been very sturdy warriors. Now what we need to do is to claim them, and hopefully we can build an intergenerational movement where they will accept and, and, and benefit from the hindsight and foresight exactly. that older black people build. Yeah. But I don't think it's fair to say right. that they have alienated people yeah. who never agreed with them anyway. Yeah. Well, and see, one of the not, things, well, I, I understand well, that you, you're not, I understand that you are not coming down on them so much as you are trying to amplify the problem that got created in terms of them building this movement. I understand that. But Janice, I mean, come on now, you've been around long enough to know that no matter what they did, 
it was going to be problematic because Absolutely. their very existence Absolutely. threatened Absolutely. the stability of white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, see, here's the, here's the, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge, and here's who is being threatened. You're gonna by have this to do movie. it very quickly. We've got a couple of more callers I want to catch, and okay. I've got only so, a few minutes. Okay, so Black Lives Matter has been actually around since Trayvon Martin, and the problem yes. with that was is that you had a trial that hadn't even come up yet. And the hashtag was created. Everything was created, and you had people from the Black Gorilla family, you had all these gang members, all these people come out talking about they want to take somebody out, and they were using this hashtag. Now, keep in mind, trials have not happened yet, so potential jewelry that you get for any case, which is why the movement was created in the first place, is now tainted because now the people have a bad opinion about the people who they're going to be reviewing. But, Same but thing people, with... with uh, but juries have never worked for us. Whether it was it's, Black it's Lives a, Matter or or, or or anything, any other, um, we shall overcome. It has those juries are going to do what they do. And right, we but see, it's not about the juries. It's about case law because even if let's say you get a miscarriage of justice, okay, man, I'm hurt because we got a miscarriage of justice. You need certain things to happen within a case where you have presidential law because the government is really slow to give us anything. They're really not going to give it to you. But if you have precedent on the book, you now have foundations to build future cases. So if you get violated again, you can always say, look, such as this case here. But and you know, have case law. The laws are already on the book. There are case law after case law. Yeah. This is yeah. a good We're going to have to extend this. This is, a conversation. this is a conversation for a two-hour show. Hey, listen, I hope you'll join us. Uh, we have open mic night on Our Common Ground uh, once a month, and it's always the last Saturday in the month. But we're also, we have extended an invitation to Alicia Garcia um, and and a few others who are part of the formation of Black Lives Matter and hope that you'll join us then. We've got to run to the next caller. Otherwise, I'm, 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 my name's going to be dirt. <laughs> well, we, we <laughs> and my name will be dirt, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm taking you with me, Ruby. Um, Take me down so, with you, girl. <laughs> I appreciate your call and hope you'll call back. Um, and join us each Saturday night at 10 p.m. 347, you're on the air. I respect you very quickly, your comments or question. 347? Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, this is Brother I.J. Chamber. Excellent. Excuse me? Um, this is Brother I.J. Chamber. I just wanted to say that I appreciate the information you gave in the show. Sister Ruby and Sister Janet, uh, particularly about um, being intergenerational, about being strategic and analytical, and not being too proud to learn from the victories and the maybe the, the, the mishaps of the past. Um, and that's basically all I wanted to say. Thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you, you and thank much. you for joining us tonight. And I hope you'll be with us next week as we pick up some. Of of these uh, issues, um, I I'm just so so grateful to all of you who have been with us tonight, and uh, Ruby Sales always has um, 
insight and perspective that is so unique and so genuine and so brilliant. Uh, and we really appreciate her her life and presence with us. I am appreciative of her friendship and how she teaches me every conversation I have with her. I learn something. I find out something about myself or something about how I can make uh, do some revisions in, in my own thinking. As a result, Ruby, you're going to be a co-host with me once a month. Yay! <laughs> and I'll try not to be such a wild woman. Yay! <laughs> no, I like I like the wild side. I like the wild side. I really and I'm and I'm really looking forward uh, to having you join me because you spark a lot of of um, deep and critical thinking that we need to have about these issues that has nothing to do, that has something to do with the the society in which we live, the laws under which we live, the challenges and crises that we experience. But at the same time, it is about us being reflective about what we do not what we what the white house does not what the black caucus doesn't do but what we can do how our thinking has to be extrapolated to what we do and how we see these events and i am so yes. grateful that you're going to be part of the Our Common Ground on-air family. Ruby, thank you so much. You stay with us. We've got some work to do before we get out of here. I want to thank all of you for joining us. And next week, this is what we're going to be all about. My thank father you. was a war crimes investigator in Europe after World War II. And we often talked about his experiences. I was reading the work of Raoul Hilberg, who wrote about the destruction of European Jews and the Holocaust. We've long known that the process of destruction was an undertaking step by step. I realized that there was a chain of destruction, that what he was talking about could be expressed by links in a chain around the world in more than one society. People do the same things again and again decade after decade, century after century. Now this chain of destruction begins with the phase we can call identification, in which a group of people is identified as a cause for problems in society. People start to perceive their fellow citizens as bad, they're evil. They used to be worthwhile people, but now all of a sudden, for some reason, their lives are worthless. The second link in the chain of destruction is ostracism, by which we learn how to hate these people, how to take their jobs away, how to make it harder for them to survive. People lose their place to live. Often they're forced into ghettos where they're physically isolated, separate from the rest of the society. On our common ground, that's where we'll be next Saturday night here at 10 p.m., and I'll be listening for you. Who are you? When you don't know, when you should have done, but you didn't, when you should have, but you don't, when you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? 
when you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you? Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. being with us tonight on Our Common Ground. Join us next Saturday night with Dr. Tommy J. Curry as our guest as we talk with you about issues of race and intersectionality. You must know who you are the first thing in the morning and all the day long. Not because they told you, but because you know it, you feel it, you believe it, and you live it. Just who are you?
443, are you still there? <laughs> the show is over. <laughs> I hope you're not paying for these minutes. I'll play some I'll play some music. <laughs> That's a little BB for you. <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> Why are you still on the line? Good night. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> 